0: So we are uh, entering into a new series in January. We are going to walk through the book of Exodus together, uh, this Old Testament story. And I have to say that I sometimes get a little paralyzed as we begin to start a new book like this because there is just so much content and there's so much that we could say. and, And you know, even in this story of Exodus 1, there's probably four or five sermons that we could be pulling out. And so. You know, I have to wrestle, um, Greg and I were talking about this, it's like di- differentiating what the Spirit would say to the church and what's just like a really fun Friday night theological discussion. <laughs> right? And so, as a, as a personality, I like the Friday night theological discussion, and so I'd love to sit here and, you know, we could talk about all of the controversial things and the, our lack of archaeological evidence for the existence and how do we understand cultural myth. Versus history, and how does right? And we could go into all of those things, and and they're not actually. I, I just, as I was thinking about it, I'm like that's probably not helpful. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> none of that. that, that we, if, if you want to talk about the lack of hi, hi, archaeological evidence for Exodus, like let's let's do that. Call me up. We'll, we'll we'll discuss it some other time. So what's actually helpful? And so I as I was prepping this week, I just kept feeling like oh, I could go down this direction. I could go down this direction. And what's the right Direction for us to hear. Exodus is a controversial book. It, it, is, it is a difficult book to understand. Um, one of the things that is difficult about the book of Exodus is just the way in which uh, there are images revealed of God that seem to conflict with the image of Christ revealed to us. If Jesus is the clear picture of the character and nature of God, the one who loves and welcomes and includes the, the foreigner and the, the you know, the Samaritan and is peaceful, Uh, certainly uh, there are images in Exodus that seem to contrast with that. So how do we deal with that? There are also historical questions. Who wrote it? When was it written? Where did it happen? Did it even happen? And the scholarly answer to all of those questions is we don't know. So I just saved you a whole bunch of reading on commentaries. The answer is we don't know. and I guess I'm, I'm just kind of like, how much of that background do we, do we really need? And, and so I, in the end, I've decided to leave those. And I, I'd rather just take us to a 10,000-foot view of what some of the big themes of the book of Exodus are. So what are we going to see as we walk through Exodus? These come from Pete Entz. He wrote a, a thin little book called Exodus for Normal People, which is, it, that's, that's my kind of book. Uh, And so so he says, one of the big themes that you're going to find as we go through here is that Yahweh is worthy of worship. So despite what we might think as we come to the book of Exodus, given the influence of children's storybook Bibles and movies like Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and all of those, you know, Exodus has found its way into a lot of popular culture, right? Despite what we might think, Exodus is not primarily about deliverance or getting the people out of Egypt. Exodus is primarily about God and why this God chooses to deliver. And so what we see, the common theme, is is this is a book about God. This is a book about Yahweh and why he is worthy to be worshipped and why he's worth following into the desert. A second big theme, and I love this language, is to save is to recreate. And uh, as if we know this, right, in the New Testament language, it's like you are a new creation. God saves us and makes us a new creation. Well, that language, that story is already found in the book of Exodus, that to save is to be recreated. And so creation is a huge part of this story and the language and language from Genesis is found throughout Exodus, especially in the first couple chapters. Uh, number three, God's Mountain, it, it shows up a whole bunch of times. It has a whole bunch of different names, uh, and so it can get kind of confusing as you're reading through because it'll have different names, which is actually just something weird in Exodus. Like uh, Jethro, who we call Moses' father, actually has four different names in the uh, collection of stories that make up Exodus. So he's, he has four different names, uh, which is why people think that there were editors who were making, bringing Exodus together. Anyway, that's, see? It's so hard to say out of the Friday theological. <laughs> conversations uh number four god gives a lot of commands uh most of us stop reading exodus around exodus 19 because the next 20 chapters are uh just a lot of commands and so it gets you know we like the big story the parting the seas the plagues the the adventure the, the yeah but then it gets kind of boring and uh god gives a lot of commands which maybe we'll get to and then number five the israelites rebel against god which, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I, I was always like, man, what, what is going on? How, how, come, how can the Israelites be so stupid? Like, did they not experience God's salvation and his work in their life? Like, do they not remember having this big experience of God? Why do they continually rebel against Moses and God who saved them, who rescued them, who's recreating them into a new people? Why are they so stupid? And then I realized as I've gotten older, why am I so stupid? Have I not experienced God saving, recreating, working in my life? And so, to me, Exodus is the story of me. Exodus is the story of us. All of us who experience God's work in our lives and then rebel and turn away. And God who faithfully calls us back. So those are some of the big themes that we will see in the story of Exodus. And so let's begin with Exodus chapter 1, and it says, and none of your Bibles say this, it says, and. And these are the names of the Israelites who came from Egypt. First word in Hebrew does not get translated because it's not a very good way to start a book. And. But what it is, and actually you'll find within the Pentateuch that four of the books all start with the word and in Hebrew. It tells one continuous story. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's one continuous story. And so I lied to you. I said we were going to start in Exodus 1, but actually we're going to start back in Genesis 46. Because this is the foundation, the the beginning of the story of of Exodus, starts in Genesis 46. And so God uh, comes, and and Jacob is packing up his family. They're getting ready to go to Egypt because the famine is driving them out of the land. And so Exodus 46, verse 2, God comes to Israel, who's also known as Jacob, and he says this, God said to Israel in a vision at night, Jacob, Jacob, he said. And he said, I'm here. And he said, I am El, your father's God. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because I will make a great nation of you there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I promise to bring you out again. Joseph will, oh, uh, because I'll make a great, I will make a great nation of you there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I promise to bring you out again. Joseph will close your eyes when you die. And so this little family, 12 people, are heading down into, uh, into Egypt, and God appears to Jacob, also known as Israel, and he says, Don't be afraid to go. And I will take your little family, and I will make you a nation, and then I will bring you back out of Egypt again. And so then we begin in Exodus, and these are the names of the Israelites who came to Egypt with Jacob along with their household and then we had a whole list of names and and then verse 5 it says the total number in Jacob's family was 70 now this is not just a um, uh, what do you call it a statistical fact about the family right 70 is a very specific theological number And so it may not be that there were actually 70 people. There might have been 100 people. There might have been 72. It doesn't matter because what the author wants you to hear is that 70, being a specific number, means that it is God has fulfilled what God said he would do for Abraham. 70 is not a random statistical fact the author wants you to know. 70 is the multiple of seven, which for the biblical writers symbolizes wholeness, completion, completion, and fulfillment of God's will. So the number seven means wholeness, completion, and fulfillment of God's will. And so in other words, that 70 is going down into Egypt means that everything is going according to God's plan. His promise to Abraham has been super fulfilled. There is already growing and multiplication of the promise to Abraham. Now, verse 7 says, But the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. So this is the language of Genesis chapter 1. It is the language of multiplying, of filling the land. The one commentator put it this way. Uh, oh, no, too soon. The one commentator translated it like this. The sons of Israel, they were fruitful. They swarmed like insects. They multiplied, they became strong, very much, very much. <laughs> the, the land was filled with them. And so this isn't just about a lot of babies being born. This is the fulfillment both of God's promise to Jacob, the promise to Abraham that his family would become a nation. But it is also the language of creation. It is Gen- Exodus 1, verse 7 is using the language of Genesis 128 to imply that Israel was doing what God intended creation to do. They are multiplying. They are filling the earth as God planned. And so Christopher Wright says, the growth of Israel in Egypt was simply God carrying on with his good purpose for creation itself. It may have been unusually prolific, but it was not exotic or miraculous in an interventionist way. Creation's got to do what creation's got to do. And that's what God wants. And so certainly God is behind the growth of Israel, but the text doesn't mention God. It's simply creation doing what creation was mandated to do by God, to fill the earth, to multiply, to care for. And so the story of Abraham is going well. God's family, his promise to Abraham has been super fulfilled. There's wholeness, completion. The 70, the family is becoming a nation and it is growing. But then we do not live in a world that is perfect. It's one of the things I like about the Bible. It understands that the world is full of tyrants and of evil and the world is not as it should be and people can and do work against God's creation purpose. And so verse 8 Tells us Now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Didn't know can also mean did not acknowledge Joseph. He felt no political or historical reason to continue on with the alliance or treaty that he had the previous king had had. He felt no moral obligation to Jacob or Joseph and his family. And instead, what Pharaoh sees is an opportunity to scapegoat A people, he turns his people's natural ethnic, ethnocentric dislike of foreigners into outright blame and fear. Something, unfortunately, we see many political leaders continue to do today. Leaders throughout history: What do you do? Blame the immigrants. Blame the foreigners. Put our country first. We got to get rid of these. It's important to notice, though, that also in seeking to dehumanize the Israelites by stirring up ethnic hatred, in seeking to kill the Israelite boys, Pharaoh now sets himself as opposed to God's creation purpose and God himself. Pharaoh will work against the arc and bend of God's created world. Pharaoh is setting himself up against the bend and arc of the universe which will lead to peace and love and order and all nations bowing before God in worship. And so Pete Entz says he may not know it yet, but Pharaoh is picking a fight with the Creator. And then we come to two of my favorite characters in the Bible, Shipra and Pua. And so, sadly, Nikki vetoed both of those names when we were having our girls. These are the first of a half dozen women in the story who will play a prominent role in the salvation of the people of Israel. So we have Shiprah and Pua. We have Moses' sister and mother, later told to be Miriam and Jochebed. We have Pharaoh's daughter. We have later Moses' wife, Zipporah, which I, I actually did advocate very hard for Zipporah. When we were ha- I was like, we could have a little girl. We could call her Zippy, it would be awesome. We have a Clara instead. But I wanted Zipporah. That was my number one name. Uh, But these women all play significant roles and parts in the salvation of the people of Israel as they work to save the people. One of the things I want you to see is that in the inclusion of these women is that while these marginalized women are named and valued, Pharaoh the most culturally important and powerful person in the world, is forgotten and shamed. We do not know what Pharaoh this was. There's some guesses, but we do not know. What we do know three, four, five thousand years later is the name of two slave women who worked to save Israel, Shipra and Pua. Now, these midwives are very... Not, are very likely not Hebrews. They're, that would, it wouldn't make sense to commit cultural genocide and then hire your own that, that ethnicity to oversee the cultural genocide of a people. So most li- But they're also not likely Egyptians because Egyptians wouldn't be working as midwives to slaves. So most likely these are another marginalized enslaved people living in Egypt placed over these women as their midwives they are foreign they are enslaved they are marginalized and yet they courageously and clever they're courageous and clever when confronting the unchecked absolute power of the king one rabbi wrote of these two women it's in a book called the most important people and places in the Hebrew Bible and it's written by a rabbi he says they feared God while other inhabitants of Egypt feared Pharaoh more than anyone else The midwives' fear of God liberated them from the fear of the Egyptian tyrant. Because they feared God, they did not fear the king. I don't know about you, but I love that thousands of years later, we're telling the story of these courageous women who stand up to oppression, who cunningly lie to fool the most powerful king, who shame him, and because of their small acts of obedience and faithfulness, they are rewarded, they are celebrated. And this, so this is what struck me this week as I was thinking about this story about Exodus. Because Exodus is the big story. This is the foundational story to the Israelite people. And it will come throughout the rest of the scripture. God is the God who saves us. Do you remember when he brought us out of Egypt? Do you remember when he parted the sea? Do you remember? Do you remember? In Exodus is the big story. It shapes and it lays the the, uh, foreshadowing of what's going to come in Christ for us. It is a big story. It it has big moments. There are huge plagues and rivers turning to blood and burning bushes and miracles and mountains and God speaks from mountains and rocks get split open and water comes pouring out and people get provided for in all of these big, miraculous ways. And Exodus can sound like it's the big story. But here in Exodus chapter 1, the thing that stands out to me is the smallness of it all. A family moves to a new country, and they have children. God's project that was started in the Garden of Eden is carrying on. It is small. It is local. There's nothing big or miraculous, and yet God is faithful and evident in it. And so Christopher Wright says we participate in the great biblical narrative that again and again dives down into the most local and particular details of time, people and places. Yet all of those particulars serve the greater, wider, universal purpose of God that embraces all nations and all creation. Somehow, we need to recapture that way of looking at the small things of life and the mission of the church, They are like billions of tiny pixels of light and color that make up a huge screen of the plan of God throughout history, past, present, and future. The midwives, Shipra and Pua, actually don't have that big a role to play. They had a small, local story. When faced with the unjust commands of a tyrant, they followed their conscience. They protected the lives of the babies that they came into contact with. Sure, it it sounds big and bold now, looking back, and we can see the grand screen, the whole picture of what it was. But in the moment, it was small. It was two women who chose to follow their conscience, fear God, and be faithful. It's small, it's local. Often, at least for me, I just want to make the best decision of what is in front of me now. I try to be faithful what is in front of me in the moment. We will see God act in the book of Exodus, but I don't want us to lose sight of the way in which God is present in the small part that each person is playing in the story. New Year's. We're going to make a big change. This is the moment. I think I shared this story before, but it's worth repeating. I I, I was praying a, a while ago, and I was I was praying, you know, like, God, who am I? And I just want to be like Moses. And God, you, I believe you have big things for me to do. Can you send the Aaron alongside me so that I can accomplish the big things for you? And I, I felt the Holy Spirit say into my life, like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, who says you're Moses? I was like, okay, God, well, like, who's the Moses that I should go to as Aaron? And God said, well, who said you're Aaron? Oh, like, so, like, I'm Bob? The Egyptian who's like building, or the Israelite who's building bricks, like doesn't get remembered. Is that, that's who I'm? No, that doesn't sound as fun. I wanted to be Moses. You and I are not called to be the heroes of every story. For every Pua, there are hundreds, if not thousands of others who simply live faithfully and did the work that God had placed in front of them. They worked alongside God's creation plan. They multiplied. They filled the earth. They followed their conscience and did the small thing in front of them faithfully. And God takes all of those things of faithful service to him, and he brings them all together into a billion little lights that show the grand picture of God's plan. Greg and Ashlyn gave me a beautiful little book for Christmas uh, called Every Moment Holy beautiful, a uh, whole bunch of little liturgies and prayers. And there's a there's a liturgy of lament for those who want to do great things. It's beautiful. And, and it's a three-parter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just wanted to read you. So there's a, a lament for the person who thought God had told them to do big things, and not, th- th- those expectations just haven't happened. These are the words that come back from, uh, are, are, are said in response to that lament. And I want to pray these over you. I think I have them up here too, actually. For it is not you that will do any great things for God, but God laboring in you and through you, who will greatly accomplish his own good purposes according to the work of his sovereignty and love. Be liberated now from this burden of believing that anything depends on you. And so be liberated at last to give yourself to his joyful service in grateful response for the grace he has lavished on you. You have till now been too invested in the results of your own efforts, as if those outcomes were a thing you could ever know or measure in this life the invested child in simple obedience to your king and in long faithfulness to his call, shepherding daily those gifts and tasks and relationships that he has entrusted to you regardless of the outcome or appearance. He will bring all things right in his way and in his time. All he asks is your willingness Your heart in his hands, your ways are in his hands, your days are in his hands. Be content in the station that he has appointed you to in this season. And yet be ever ready to move at the impulse of his love. Tend well those things that are before you, however humble they may be. And he will lead you in time to other good works he has appointed for you. Whether big or small is of no matter. He attaches no numbers to your service. It is your heart and faithfulness he appraises. My prayer for you as we begin this series in Advent, as we begin a new year, is that you would be content with what God has placed before you. And that God would find you faithful in the small tasks and things that He has placed in front of you. Because there are no small things. God does not place numbers to the work that He's placed in front of us. Our task is simply to be faithful. And the story that we see in the numbers, the growth of a family in Egypt, the story we see in these Hebrew midwives of Shipra and Pua is simply God's working in our faithfulness to carry out his plan. And so God takes our small acts of faithfulness and in his faithfulness multiplies and grows to bring about his plan and his will for us. He'll bring all things right in his way, in his his time. All he asks is your willingness. Your heart is in his hands. Your ways are in his hands. Your days are in his hands.